This is a Scream Queen production. These violent delights have violent ends. Violent ends. Violent ends. Greetings, Earthlings. I'm Jen Carpenter, and this is Violent Ends. In today's episode, we will be talking about aliens. Why now, after all these years? Because just a couple months ago, as in like two months ago, our government shot down a UFO right here in Michigan. I feel like our society has been in such a tailspin since COVID started. We've been living in unprecedented times for so long that news that would have been fucking huge 5, 10, 15 years ago gets little more than a shoulder shrug now. And the UFO sitch from earlier this year is one of those things. So here's a little refresher. Over the course of nine days back in February, the military shot down four unidentified flying objects over North American airspace. Four. The first sign of trouble came on February 1st, when civilians on a commercial flight spotted a giant white orb in the sky the size of an NHL hockey rink, making its way slowly through the big Montana sky. High up, too. According to the Google machine, airplanes typically fly at altitudes between 30 and 40,000 feet, while this thing was clocked at about 60,000 feet, so it was way up there. That same morning, journalist Chase Doak was getting ready for work in Billings, Montana, when he heard news of a ground stop put in place to restrict air travel over Billings, which piqued his curiosity. He looked out the window and about shit his pants. He saw what he first mistook for a star, but quickly realized it was too big and also broad daylight, so he then decided that it had to be a UFO. And it it, I mean, it was, because let's remember that UFO just stands for Unidentified Flying Object. So if you see something flying in the sky and don't know what it is, it's a UFO until it's identified, and then it becomes an IFO. And if you never identify it, then it remains a UFO. That doesn't necessarily mean aliens. It just means you don't know what the fuck it was. So he later posted to his Twitter, not gonna lie, First, I thought it was a UFO. Then I thought it was Elon Musk in a Wizard of Oz cosplay scenario. Whatever it was, he needed to document it so that people didn't think he was crazy pants. So he started snapping photos and taking videos with his phone, but he also contacted a friend at the Billings Gazette, and the two took photos of the object with a telephoto lens. And they published them that day on the Billings Gazette website. From the photos, it was determined that the object was, indeed, bright white, cylindrical, 200 feet tall, and 150 feet around. So, the size of a hockey rink or Cinderella's castle at Walt Disney. The photos, understandably, started a bit of a panic, which forced the government to speak out on the situation. So, the next day, February 2nd, the U.S. Department of Defense was like, look, we know. We've known about it for a few days, actually. It's, it's just a Chinese spy balloon, and we're tracking it. Rather than shooting it down because it's flying over land, 
And if we shoot Cinderella's castle out of the sky over land, we have no control over where the debris winds up. So everybody just chill out. Drink a 7-Up. Eat a moon pie. The military continued to track the balloon for the next couple of days as it made its way across the country. And then on February 4th, as soon as that fucker hit the open water of the Atlantic Ocean near the Carolinas, the FAA closed airspace over the area in one of the largest flight restrictions in U.S. history. And the Air Force shot that thing down using an F-22 fighter jet. Debris rained down on a two-mile-wide patch of the ocean, so good call not shooting it out of the sky while it was still over land, and the Coast Guard, Navy, and FBI spent the next few days picking up the pieces and shipping them off to Quantico for analysis. China had the nerve to be like, hey, we want our ball back. We want our spy balloon back, and we, of course, told them to fuck off, so... This whole incident, on its own, super weird, right? But wait, there's more. Less than a week later, on Thursday, February 9th, another UFO entered U.S. airspace north of Alaska. An F-35 fighter jet was sent to do a flyby, and what they reported back to the Pentagon raised more questions than answers. They were like, so uh, we don't know what the fuck this thing is. It's about the size of a small car. It's cruising at 40,000 feet. We can't see like an engine or propeller or anything, so we don't know how it's even staying up in the air. And then the closer we were getting to it, the more our sensors and equipment in our plane started fucking up. So the next morning, February 10th, another F-35 did a flyby and reported pretty much the same thing. At this point, the UFO was cruising over the Beaufort Sea, which is north of Alaska, near the Alaska-Canada border. Because it was over water, because it was flying at the same altitude as civilian airplanes, thus posing a reasonable threat to other aircraft, and because this was the second UFO to enter U.S. airspace in less than a week, the Air Force shot that one down real quick using another F-22. Being that the Beaufort Sea is north of Alaska and that it was February, everything was frozen over, so they wouldn't have to go diving for the pieces this time. They should be able to find it easy, right? They should have. But to this date, officials have not found a single piece of debris. They scoured the Beaufort Sea for nearly a week before calling off the search, so we have no idea what it was, still. And publicly, at least, The government is not putting any further resources into trying to figure it out. They're just like, we shot it down, it's done, it's over. Hold your questions. And boy, do I have questions. The very next day, on February 11th, another UFO was spotted, this time over Canada's Yukon Territory. This one was also flying at about 40,000 feet, so again, in the same airspace as commercial airplanes, which made it a threat. It was described as a cylindrical object that was smaller than the Chinese spy balloon, but similar in appearance. So this is three. Three UFOs in a week. We were not fucking around anymore. Even though it was a Canadian airspace, a U.S. fighter jet was sent up, another F-22, to shoot down UFO number three. And just like with the one the day before, not a trace of wreckage or debris was ever found. 
Also on February 11th, for the second time in a week, airspace over Montana was restricted. The first time, it was for the Chinese spy balloon. The second time, it was for an anomaly on the radar which indicated another UFO, a fourth one. But when planes were sent up to look for it, they found nothing. It had simply disappeared. It reappeared the following day, Sunday, February 12th, in Wisconsin. Airspace was closed over parts of Wisconsin, Lake Michigan, and northern Michigan as the Department of Defense tracked the eight-sided object, which was flying at about 20,000 feet. It crossed over northern Michigan, grazed the fingernails, if you will, mayhaps stopped in Mackinac for some fudge, before entering airspace over Lake Huron headed for the U.S.-Canada border. An F-15 fighter jet was sent up after it. The first missile fired at the UFO missed and landed harmlessly in Lake Huron, according to officials. The second missile hit its mark, and just like the two UFOs taken down the day before that and the day before that, this UFO simply disappeared, not a trace of debris. So let's just recap that real quick. Between February 4th and February 12th, 2023, the year we're all living and thriving in right now, four UFOs were shot down over North American airspace. The first was identified as a Chinese spy balloon. The other three were never identified and never located. And one of them, along with an unspent fighter jet missile, is believed to be somewhere in Lake Huron. Was it aliens? I, I mean, probably. Did we just start an intergalactic war? Also, probably. But was this the first time the Mitten State has ever had a brush with extraterrestrials? No, ma'am. No, ma'am. Before we get into Michigan's history with Little Green Men, I would like to thank today's sponsor. No one has hair like yours, so why would you settle for mass-produced, one-size-fits-all hair care? I've got this fine, straight, thin hair that's also somehow super frizzy and it drives me crazy. But since making the switch to -to made-to-order hair care with Pros, I can honestly say I've never been more in love with my hair. Pros makes custom hair care that's effective because the formulas are actually made to order for your unique needs. Using natural, sustainably sourced ingredients with proven results, Pros customizes every product in your routine from shampoo to supplements. First, Pros starts by asking about my hair goals. All I want is hair that looks cute and healthy without a ton of styling. I don't feel like that's too much to ask for, but I've not really been able to achieve it before now. Their in-depth consultation asks about you as a person. Pros asked me some really unexpected things, such as my zip code and my exercise routine, so that they could consider environmental factors before making recommendations. Next, Pros analyzed all my answers and handpicked clean, sustainably sourced ingredients to help me reach my hair goals. I'm a pretty low-maintenance girl, so I just use the shampoo and conditioner and then the pre-shampoo hair mask. My hair is so soft, it looks so much healthier, and it's holding curls and styles so much better than it ever has. 
As a carbon-neutral certified B Corp, Pros is an industry leader in clean and responsible beauty. All their ingredients are sustainably sourced, ethically gathered, and cruelty-free. They're also the first custom beauty brand to go carbon-neutral. If you're not 100% positive Pros is the best hair care you've tried, they will take the products back, no questions asked. Custom, made-to-order hair care with Pros is the key to achieving all your hair goals this year. Take your free, in-depth hair consultation and get 15% off your first order today. Go to pros.com slash violent. That's P-R-O-S-E dot com slash violent for your free, in-depth hair consultation and 15% off. And be sure to tell them I sent you. All right. Now, another thing I want to do before we go any further today is clarify a couple of things so that we can all set appropriate expectations. A. I am not Neil deGrasse Tyson, although I have been mistaken for him a time or two. I know nothing about space or time or astrophysics, so don't bother adding me over technical things that I get wrong today. I'm I'm trying. I'm here, okay? I'm here. I'm trying. That's all a girl can do sometimes. Two, I 1 million percent believe in aliens. According to the Google, the number of planets in our universe starts with a one and has 25 zeros after it. What even is that number? I, I'm just, we're today for today's purposes, we're just going to call it 110 Bequadrazillion because that is all I could come up with. The thought that out of that many planets, we are the only one with life on it, that is, that is honestly the perfect characterization of the American mindset. <laughs> and I mean, I've always felt this way. Even as a kid in the 80s when they drilled into our impressionable little brains that the Milky Way was the be-all, end-all, and that no other planet could sustain life. Which, who are we to say what is needed to sustain any and all forms of life? Maybe humans are the, I'm allergic to tap water, species of the universe. Maybe all of the other 110 bequadrazillion planets are laughing at us as a planet, the way the rest of the world is laughing at us as a country. So do I believe? Yes. And some of you may think that's crazy, but I think it's crazy to think that in this entire universe, 11 bequadrazillion planets were the only one with life. Like, get over yourself. Okay, so... There are as many UFO sighting stories out there as there are planets in the galaxy, but we're going to focus on the big three today. The Michigan UFO sightings of 1897, 1966, and 1994. Buckle up, buttercups, because it's time for a ride through outer space. In late 1896, reports of an unidentified flying airship started coming out of California. We were still several years away from airplanes at this point, so nothing should have been in the sky besides birds and bees and stars and blimps. Maybe they had blimps back then, right? I probably should have looked that up. I don't know. I don't know when we got blimps, but maybe blimps. 
Uh, Over the next several weeks, reports of unexplained lights in the sky were reported all across California. But as news didn't spread as quickly or as widely as it does now, the reports eventually died down and the story, much like the mysterious lights themselves, disappeared. But in early 1897, the airship sightings started up again and they worked their way across the country. California, Nevada, Arizona, Oregon, Missouri, Iowa, Wisconsin, and eventually Michigan. The first incident in Michigan occurred in March of 1897 when a strange meteor was reported in the sky over Holland, which is near Grand Rapids, for nearly an hour this thing was in the sky. And like, don't meteors just crash? Like you see it on the way down and then there's the big crash. Um, They don't like hover. Now, Holland is on the Lake Michigan coastline. So here's where we remind ourselves about the Lake Michigan Triangle that we talked about in an episode last year. Holland falls squarely within said triangle. Right around that same time, ghost lights were reported near the village of Shearer on Boner Lake and Mills Lake. (laughs) Where is the village of Shearer? Where is Boner Lake? I don't fucking know. The book I was reading said on Boner and Mills Lakes near the village of Shearer. I could find no Shearer village at all. So it must be one of like those little 1800s communities that's either gone now or changed its name. I did find Boner Lake in Mills Township. So I feel like that is a good guess. That's that's probably the right area. And if that is the spot, um, if you're looking at your hand as a map of Michigan, it's kind of right on the middle knuckle of your pointer finger between West Branch and Tawas City. This is not at all part of the Lake Michigan Triangle, but it is close to Lake Huron, where our most recent UFO encounter occurred. Residents were said to be so spooked by these ghost lights that they just packed up their shit in the middle of the night and left town. Peaced out, no questions asked. There were also reports of ghost lights in Caseville out over the Saginaw Bay, the Saginaw Bay is the thing that really like solidifies Michigan as the mitten. It's the body of water that separates your pointer finger from your thumb. So that's what makes like the trademark hand shape, which Wisconsin has spent years trying to duplicate but continues to fail. The Saginaw Bay is fed by Lake Huron. So essentially, what I assume was Shearer Township and then Caseville are kind of across the bay from one another. The fluttering light spotted out over the bay by dozens of witnesses was believed at the time to be the spirits of those killed when a steamer sank in the bay years earlier. Michiganders had heard rumblings about the phantom airships making their way across the country, but their first thought when weird shit started happening was ghosts. The first actual airship sighting occurred on April 10th, 1897. So before that, it was just weird lights in the sky, but this is an actual vessel. And it happened in Alma, which is in the dead center of the mitten. It was observed for about an hour in the western sky, a lighted cylindrical vessel high above land. The following night, similar reports came out of Benton Harbor, home of our favorite long-haired cult, which is on the Lake Michigan shoreline and right back in that Lake Michigan Triangle danger zone. 
Several witnesses reported watching this cylindrical vessel with red, green, and blue flickering lights sailing through the sky before it disappeared off to the northwest. Residents of the nearby town of St. Joseph also spotted the craft. So St. Joe and Benton Harbor are both right on the Lake Michigan coast, with Benton Harbor bordering St. Joe to the north. An hour later, so still on April 11th, several hundred people spotted what they called an aerial machine floating above Black Lake near Holland, where the very first reports of weirdness in the mitten occurred a few weeks earlier. And these weren't just bored kids making up stories. This was the town doctor, Dr. J.D. Wetmore. (laughs) What are these names today? And Mr. C.L. King, the manager of King's Basket Factory. You know the guy. Super trustworthy. There were also sightings near Niles, which is not on the Lake Michigan coast, like the rest of the April 11th cities, but further inland, near the Michigan-Indiana border, about 25 miles southeast of St. Joe, for context. The Phantom airship was also spotted in Menden, which is even further inland than Niles, but still in southern Michigan, near the Indiana state line. From Holland to Menden is nearly 80 miles, so that's a pretty large area over which these sightings occurred all on the same night. Especially when there was no way for any of the people in any of these towns to know that other people were seeing it. Like, it was 1897, they weren't Facebooking. And the next night, it happened again. Dozens of reputable residents of my favorite creepy city and yours, Battle Creek, watched the vessel pass two miles west of the city at 8.55 p.m. on April 12th. Geography-wise, we're still in that same general part of the state, the southeast corner, although Battle Creek is closer to the center of the state than it is to any of the Great Lakes, so not really near water, but still in that same kind of corner of the state. One witness reported, Sparks flew forth and the ship began to slowly settle to within about a half mile from Earth. It was 25 to 30 feet long and hovered near the ground a few moments when a buzzing noise was heard. Again, the sparks flew out as if from an emery wheel and the machine began to rise slowly and the lights went out. Some witnesses even claimed to have heard faint voices coming from the craft before it disappeared to the southwest. I wonder if Dr. Kellogg saw it or like if you could spot it from the sanitarium. Maybe they were coming to the sanitarium. Maybe they were leaving the sanitarium. That was a really weird place and a weird time in Battle Creek history. Residents of Kalamazoo, which is located about 25 miles due west of Battle Creek, reported seeing a beautifully illuminated airship moving at approximately 50 miles an hour right around that same time. It was headed northwesterly. One of the witnesses was the editor of the Kalamazoo Gazette, Mr. Andrew J. Shakespeare, so he was able to publish a first-hand account of the encounter in the paper the next morning. Pavilion Township is a small community in Kalamazoo County. Residents there watched in horror as an illuminated object exploded in the sky. It rattled windows and woke people from their sleep. The next morning, fragments of what looked to be electric appliances and other unknown materials were found scattered about town. The following night, April 13th, the Phantom Airship sightings continued. 
George Parks of Battle Creek reported that the vessel swooped within 100 feet of his barn and that a wheel fell off and embedded itself in the ground. The wheel, which was three feet in diameter, was put on display at the Parks farm. As the fervor grew around these airship sightings in Michigan, so did the hoaxes. A newspaper boy in Battle Creek claimed to have found a letter dropped from the vessel. As if aliens wouldn't have their own language, like they would write a letter in English and drop it on the ground. Hundreds of residents of Pontiac, which is near Detroit, lost their shit when they saw lights in the sky, only to find out that some kids had hauled lanterns up onto the school's flagpole. And on April 15th, Hundreds of Lansing residents reported seeing the airship only to find out that it was a paper lantern some kids had sent up into the sky. The next day, though, on April 16th, a Lansing man claimed to have accepted a ride in a cigar-shaped airship with large wings flown by someone who called himself the Professor. (laughs) What the fuck? And things just kept getting crazier. On April 16th alone, sightings witnessed by dozens, sometimes hundreds of people, were reported in Saginaw, which is on the east side of the state, Charlotte, which is right near Lansing and where we hold the Festival of Oddities, Hudson, which is in southern Michigan, almost in the middle but a little more to the east, kind of near the Michigan-Ohio border, Hart, which is north of Muskegon, so northwest side of the state, Uh, on the Lake Michigan border, again, so then again back in the Triangle Danger Zone, Olivet, which is back near Charlotte, Battle Creek again, Middleville, which is smack dab between Lansing and Holland, and then also again in Lansing. By early May, additional reports had been made in Manistee, Saginaw, Davison, Three Rivers, Saline, Grant, Marquette, Marshall, Geneseeville, which I don't think exists anymore, Sidna, which I actually don't think exists anymore either, Dayton, Flint, and Wyandotte. So basically all over the fucking state. It was phantom airship mania. Until it wasn't. Newspapers began to poke fun at witnesses, question their stories, publish cartoons, making fun of them. Basically made the whole thing into a big joke. Just, just like we did when it happened again a couple couple months ago here. Uh, and so the reports slowly stopped coming in, and a few years later, real airships took to the sky with the invention of airplanes. But the aliens? They would be back. Now let's jump ahead almost 70 years to 1966. But before we do that, because so many of these sightings were in areas inside the Lake Michigan Triangle, And because we've talked about the triangle before in episode 82, if you want to refresh, I do want to recount some of the strange things that happened in the triangle between the 1897 sightings and the 1966 incident. There was the disappearance of the Rouse Simmons, also known as the Christmas tree ship in 1912 with 16 souls on board. In 1919, a lighthouse keeper near Grand Haven witnessed a large fireball crash into the middle of Lake Michigan right about the same time that all electric and phone service to the area cut out. In 1921, the Rosabelle, a ship owned by the House of David, was passing through the Lake Michigan Triangle with around a dozen people on board when it simply disappeared. 
1937, Captain George Donner disappeared from inside his locked stateroom aboard the McFarland on his 58th birthday, right as the ship passed through the Triangle. And in 1950, an entire airplane, Northwest Orient Airlines Flight 2501, disappeared over the Lake Michigan Triangle with 55 souls on board. So, things were by no means peaceful and quiet during the lull in starship activity, but in 1966, it got real weird. Dexter is a small, rural community of about 6,600 people located 8 miles northwest of Ann Arbor. So, down in like the southeast side of the state. This is where the Manor Farm was located. Frank Manor, his wife Leona, and their 10 children lived on a large farm with dozens of dogs and cows and other animals. Frank was a World War II vet and a truck driver, a real salt-of-the-earth type of guy. In 1966, he was 47 years old. The Manor family had just concluded Sunday night supper on the evening of March 20th, and they were watching TV, maybe like a little Lassie, a little Ed Sullivan action, when around 7.30 that night, Frank's half-dozen dogs started barking like mad, and his 20-plus cows started cowing loudly. So he stepped out onto the front porch to tell them to shut the fuck up, and then he saw it. What looked like a giant falling star hurtling toward the swamp on his property. Frank braced himself for impact, but just before the thing hit the ground, it stopped, midair, and then hovered above the swamp. The farm fell silent as Frank and his animals stared at the object. He called his family out onto the porch, and his wife and all ten kids saw the same thing he was seeing. So Frank called the sheriff, and rather than write him off as some crazy farmer who'd had too much after-dinner whiskey, that's a thing, right, Um, and just assuming he was making things up, over a dozen deputies raced to the manor farm because they'd seen it too. Something foreign, oddly shaped, with blinking colored lights hovering in the night sky before it disappeared below the tree line. And we're not just talking one or two deputies that saw this thing, we're talking several. As the entirety of the Washtenaw County Sheriff's Department made its way to the manor farm, Frank decided to go investigate, because of course he did. So he and his eldest son, 19-year-old Ronald, quietly and carefully made their way out to the swamp thing. They walked for about a half hour, then they stopped when they were just a hundred feet or so from the craft, which was still hovering above the swamp. They had a completely unobstructed view. It's late March, 7 8 o'clock, so it would have been darkish, but not pitch black out yet. Here's how Frank described what he and his son saw. It was flat on the bottom, like a pyramid that's been rounded off at the top. The outside was like coral corrugated, I guess, is the word. And there were different colored lights flashing on it. Blue, red, white. It was moving up and down and left and right, moving slowly, hovering. It wasn't actually on the ground, but seemed to be just a few feet above it. From where we were looking, it was about the size of a car. Ron turned to his dad and said, my God, dad, look at that horrible thing. 
And this was the first time that either man had spoken since getting close to the vessel. As soon as Ron spoke, the lights on the vessel went out as if it heard him. So Frank and Ron started running toward it, but when they got to the spot where the object had been hovering, it was gone. There were no fumes, there was no debris, just a big matted down patch of land beneath where it had been. The two men ran up onto a hill and they saw the vessel again, now about 500 yards away, and this is when police started to arrive. For nearly a half hour, the manors, their neighbors, and dozens of sheriff's deputies, 60 or so people in total, watched the vessel hover and flit about, lights blinking. At one point, the entire thing lit up with a yellowish glow. Officer Robert Hunnewill of the Dexter Police Department heard reports of the sighting come in over his radio, so he did what any on-duty police officer should do when E.T. comes a-callin'. He went home, got his wife, and drove out to the scene in his squad car. By the time the Hunnewills arrived, the skies were quiet again as dozens of officers and citizens searched the swamp. Then, suddenly, Four lighted flying objects appeared directly over Officer Hunnewell's squad car, not quite a thousand feet up. They circled, spun, and then took off at a high rate of speed, flying directly over the crowd of witnesses with a whistling sound like a rifle bullet ricocheting. And this is all from an official police report, by the way. Like, this isn't just someone retelling the story. This is from the police report. The craziest part is this was just one of dozens of UFO sightings in southeast Michigan during March of 1966. The very next night, March 21st, a group of co-eds at Hillsdale College, roughly 60 miles southwest of Dexter, saw something strange hovering over the arboretum from their McIntyre Hall dorms. They described it as pie-shaped with red lights that cast a glow over the entire vessel, a giant, glowing flying disc. They contacted Bud Van Horn, Hillsdale County's civil defense director, who headed out to the scene with a city of Hillsdale police officer and two state troopers, all of whom also saw the flying saucer. Around 150 people saw the strange object hovering in the sky over Hillsdale College before it, like the UFO in Dexter the night before, disappeared without a trace. Less than a week before the incident on the manor farm on March 14th, Washtenaw County Sheriff's deputies reported seeing four strange flying objects in the sky moving at high rates of speed. Law enforcement officials in Livingston and Monroe counties also reported seeing these same red-green lighted objects moving at fantastic speeds, as did authorities in Sylvania, Ohio, and on Selfridge Air Force Base near Mount Clemens, Michigan. So the U.S. government was already investigating before the incidents on the manor farm and at Hillsdale College occurred. They sent in astrophysicist Dr. J. Allen Hynek from Northwestern University, who traveled out to the manor farm with the sheriff. He inspected the scene, but there was nothing left behind other than that big, matted-down patch of grass. He spoke to the witnesses. He took notes. And on the way back to police headquarters, he confided in the sheriff that he had no idea what was going on. When they got back to the office, Dr. Hynek called the higher-ups in Washington. 
He took the call in privacy, so no one really knows what was said, but when he returned, he seemed shaken. Head down, unable to look anyone in the eye, he said, Swamp gas. It, it, it was swamp gas. It was just swamp gas. The sheriff later recalled that the way Dr. Hynek said the words, he didn't think he even knew what swamp gas was. So the government wrote off these sightings by hundreds of credible witnesses, including law enforcement officials from two states, as swamp gas. Because it was easier to believe an unbelievable explanation than to face the truth that we're not alone, the residents of Dexter began to ridicule and harass the manors. They trespassed on their land, broke their windows, climbed up on their roof, and yelled to the aliens. But Frank Manor, who had literally nothing to gain by making all of this up, stood strong. When accused by one high-ranking official of seeing an illusion, he said, Are you an illusion? Well then, neither was that object. It was as real as you are. I don't see things. I'm not that kind of man. Before this, I was just as skeptical as the next person. I'm not about to guess where it came from or what it was. Let's just say it moved faster than anything I'd ever seen before. And it was real. I'm not about to become a saucer fanatic. I'm not that kind. I only report what I see. I'm not going to start guessing. Everyone else saw it too, but I don't even care about that. You can believe me or not. It doesn't matter. I know what I saw. One person who believed him? Then-Congressman Gerald R. Ford, the House Republican leader at the time. On March 28, 1966, he issued the following press release. Note to all media. House Minority Leader Gerald R. Ford, Republican, Michigan, today sent the attached letter to the chairman and the ranking Republican members of the House Committees on Armed Services in Science and Astronautics, urging that one committee or the other investigate the subject of unidentified flying objects. Ford is not satisfied with the Air Force explanation of the recent sightings in Michigan and describes the swamp gas version given by astrophysicist J. Allen Hynek as flippant. Ford has received a number of telegrams and letters from individuals anxious to see a congressional investigation of UFOs. Congressman Ford wrote several more letters over the next several weeks, all of which were ignored. And the UFO sightings of 1966 remain classified as swamp gas to this day. Before we talk about our final alien encounter, I do need to thank today's other sponsor. HelloFresh, America's number one meal kit, takes the hassle out of mealtime this spring by delivering pre-portioned ingredients and easy-to-prepare recipes right to your door. Skip the checkout lines and get outside in the warmer weather because HelloFresh has dinner covered. Spend less time in the kitchen with quick and easy meals like HelloFresh's Fast and Fresh Pineapple Chicken Tacos or Falafel Power Bowls, ready in 15 minutes or less. April is a very busy month in these parts, and the last thing I have time to do is sit down and meal plan, go grocery shopping, and then spend hours in the hot kitchen cooking. HelloFresh takes the guesswork out of all of it. They do the planning and the shopping and make the cooking part so simple, even I can't mess it up. Did you know that every plate who we've talked about many times before here on the show is now owned by HelloFresh? 
that means an even wider array of meal plans to choose from, which means something for everyone. I love switching between brands for more variety, and I'm excited to be able to share the opportunity to save on HelloFresh with my fans. Go to HelloFresh.com slash VIOLENTENDS50 and use code VIOLENTENDS50 for 50% off, plus your first box ships free. Again, that's HelloFresh.com slash VIOLENTENDS50 for 50% off, plus your first box ships free. And be sure to tell them I sent you. All right, now... We're going to travel ahead 28 years from 1966 to 1994. But first, I want to remind you of probably the strangest Lake Michigan Triangle incident of all, which happened between the 1966 and 1994 incidents. In February of 1978, 23-year-old college student Stephen Kabaki went out hiking on a frozen Lake Michigan near Holland, right in Triangle Territory, and disappeared. His belongings were found on the beach. His boot prints were on the beach and on the ice. There was no broken or thawed portion of the lake that he could have fallen into. He was just gone. Fifteen months later, one year, three months later, he turned up over a thousand miles away in Pittsfield, Massachusetts, which, did I, Massachusetts, with no recollection of how he got there or where he'd been for the past 15 months. So now it's 1994, the year of Forrest Gump and Pulp Fiction. Ace of Base and All for One ruled the charts. And in West Michigan, things were about to get wild. Quick geography check here because I know not all of you are from Michigan. The 1966 incident occurred in southeast Michigan, over land, no water other than swampland in sight. This next one was all up and down Michigan's west coast along Lake Michigan, so like the karate chopping part of your hand, and also the heart of the Lake Michigan Triangle. This incident was actually featured on an episode of the Unsolved Mysteries reboot, so I pulled a lot of information from there. Lots of firsthand accounts and recordings from calls to the police, things like that. Jack Bashong has always loved science, the weather in particular. He grew up in Muskegon, which is a medium-sized city of just under 40,000 people, located on Lake Michigan, about halfway up the shoreline. If you're using your hand as a map of Michigan, which of course you are, Michigan's kind of right at the bottom of your pinky knuckle, like the bottom knuckle on your pinky. From his yard, Jack could watch the weather rolling off the lake as a kid, and he began studying weather patterns when he was about six years old. He grew up, went to college for meteorology, I can't believe I pronounced that right on the first try, and got a job at the National Weather Service in Muskegon. In 1994, Jack was 29, married, and had been working second shift, which was 4 p.m. to midnight, at the National Weather Service for about three years. Unless there was a major weather event, it wasn't unusual for those working past regular business hours to be there alone. So Jack was manning the ship on his own the night of March 8th when a call came in that would change his life forever. Right around 10 p.m., he received a call from Ottawa County Central Dispatch 
asking him to check the radar for anything strange going on in the sky. The officer on the other line said, We've gotten about 60 UFO calls tonight. To which Jack replied in textbook Michigan fashion, Oh, geez. <laughs> You'd like they play the recording, you actually hear him say that. It's pretty funny. His exasperation and amusement quickly turned to shock and awe, however, as he spent the next several hours tracking something otherworldly in the night sky. It all started around 9 p.m. when Cindy Pravda was in her kitchen in Grand Haven, which is about 15 miles south of Muskegon, talking on her phone. It was 1994, and while my household was full of fancy cordless phones with caller ID by then, Cindy still had a corded wall unit. She was talking to her friend Edna, pacing back and forth as she was tethered to the kitchen by the phone cord. Suddenly, her entire kitchen lit up like the lighting section at Menards. She looked at her kitchen window and saw a brightly glowing light in the sky. As her eyes adjusted, she saw four bright lights in a straight row, holding steady just above the tree line in her backyard. Every now and then, one of the lights on either end of the row would push off to the side, maybe 10, 20 feet from the rest, then slide back into formation. There was no sound. It was completely silent. Her horse, who was in the backyard grazing, didn't even look up. He couldn't see, hear, or sense anything strange going on. Cindy said to her friend, Edna, I think there's a UFO in my backyard. Cindy didn't have a cam camcorder or a camera for some reason, so she just stood at the window watching the strange lights for about a half hour before they all zipped off into the night sky. 20 miles to the south, Holly Graves and her husband Darrow were asleep in their Holland, Michigan home. Their two kids, a 10-year-old daughter and 14-year-old son, were in the living room watching either cable TV or movies on the VCR, really the only two options back then. Holly awoke to the sound of her children screaming. Every parent's nightmare. Every, either that or the sound of them puking, like tied for first place. She and her husband ran out to the living room where the kids were hysterical. Mom, you've got to see this, her son yelled. The entire living room was lit up like there was a spotlight shining through the picture window. There was a bright light coming from the sky just across the street. The family went outside to get a closer look, and they will never forget what they saw. A 300-foot-long chrome cylindrical object lined with bright lights all in a row. Red, green, blue, and a bright white light shining from the bottom of the craft. It was hovering in one place, but slowly spinning. There were no windows. It made no sound. So Holly called 911. And Officer Jeffrey Velthouse was dispatched to the scene. It took him about 15, 20 minutes to get there. And when he arrived, the craft was still there. He and Holly's husband stood in the front yard for another good 10 minutes, watching the vessel hover silently above them, studying it through binoculars. Before the one big shining object split apart into five different shining objects and then disappeared. By the time Officer Velthouse left the Graves' home, calls from all over Ottawa and Allegan counties were coming in. Everyone was seeing these weird lights in the sky. 
And this is when the Sheriff's Department brought in the National Weather Service's Jack Bashong in his fancy radar detector. Jack, who was a skeptical guy, a fact-based scientist, quickly located an anomaly at about 6,000 feet in the area of the sightings, moving at about 100 miles an hour, not uncharacteristic of an aircraft. But the more he watched, the more it became clear that this was no airplane. What was it, though? Jack has spent nearly 30 years trying to answer that question. From 10 p.m. until 2 a.m., Jack watched on the radar as one big blob, much larger than even the biggest commercial airplane, broke apart into three smaller blobs that maintained a triangular formation. They would shoot from 5,000 to 50,000 feet in a matter of seconds. One would jump 20 miles from shore in a fraction of a second, and then the other two would follow, keeping that triangular formation. Jumping such long distances so quickly meant that these things were moving at 72,000 miles per hour. 72,000 miles per hour. That would take you from New York to L.A. in two minutes. And as our favorite meteorologist Jack Bashong said, there is no technology in the world that can do that. Although he couldn't see the craft, just its imprint on radar, Jack could tell a few things about it. It was reflective, highly polished metal. Whereas a commercial airliner looks like a pinprick on a radar, this thing was the size of half a fingernail, according to Jack. He told Ottawa County Dispatch, I've never seen anything like this. And we know this because their entire conversation was recorded, but we'll get to that in a minute. So around Holland, this triangular formation of three vessels made its way out to the center of Lake Michigan and then just hovered in place over open water for hours. Jack didn't realize this at the time, but the objects stationed themselves over the only part of the lake that wasn't completely frozen over. Jack watched in amazement as not only did these crafts hover in place, which an airplane, helicopter, blimp, balloon cannot do for that long, but dozens more of these objects showed up on radar and joined them, almost like it was a rendezvous point. No names were given for this next account, so I'm a little bit skeptical, but an investigator claimed that a couple was camping on the beach that night south of Holland and woke up around midnight to see a wall of water out on the lake at least 20 feet wide going all the way up to the sky, illuminated by a source of light. I mean, at this point, now... Uh, I'm just thinking it was Nestle in those spaceships stealing our fucking water again. Solved it. You're welcome. Um, But this couple who was camping in 20-degree weather on a Lake Michigan beach, apparently, got so spooked that they fled the beach, leaving all of their belongings behind. I call, like, 60% bullshit on this one. I I don't know if I believe it. Jack made it a point to say that the weather was clear that night. Again, 20 degrees with a slight breeze and good visibility, no fronts or weather systems passing through. And he made sure to say that it wasn't fucking swamp gas. He didn't say fucking, I added that because I could tell he was thinking it, but he did say it was not swamp gas. Eventually, and by eventually, I mean about five hours after they were first spotted, the objects took off like a rocket into the night sky. 
Jack drove home that night questioning everything he'd always believed about science and the universe. The next morning, news stations and newspapers were flooded with calls from witnesses. One journalist contacted the Ottawa County Dispatch and requested the audio from all of the 911 calls, and he had those recordings in his hand within a couple of hours. One after another, he listened to calls from sincere, credible witnesses, not kids playing pranks or the tinfoil hat brigade, but very down-to-earth people apologizing for bothering them in true Midwest form, but saying things like, I feel so silly calling, but can you tell me if they're like Air Force planes or helicopters doing drills tonight? And please hang up on me if another call comes in. I don't think this is an emergency, but can you tell me what's going on? Because my kids are scared. And I don't know if you guys do anything about UFOs, but these ain't airplanes. It was very clear that these people saw something. They were sincere, and you could hear it in their voices. This was not some hoax. Over 300 witnesses reported the strange lights in the sky that night, and while West Michigan was ground zero, the sightings were pretty widespread. Out of the 82 counties in Michigan, 42 reported UFO sightings that night. Over half of the state saw this thing. Even pilots who refused to be named publicly contacted authorities to report they had seen the vessels over Lake Michigan as they flew into Chicago's O'Hare Airport. News stations started releasing the audio of these calls to drive home the point that whatever happened, it was real. But among those recordings was the call from 911 to the National Weather Service and Jack Bashong. By the time Jack arrived at work the next day, his bosses and his coworkers had heard the recordings. He didn't even know the call was being recorded. Jack's genuine reaction to what he saw on the radar that night as it was happening in real time was the most credible piece of evidence that something extraordinary had happened. But a government agency couldn't acknowledge that UFOs were real, right? So they did everything they could to discredit Jack. They said the anomalies on radar were caused by a temperature inversion. They mocked Jack. When he got to work the next day, his coworkers had strung paper plates together to make them look like flying saucers and hung them all over Jack's workspace. He was no longer a respected meteorologist and scientist. He was a laughingstock. And he knew the only way to make it stop was to leave Michigan, where he'd lived his entire life. So he did. He took a job with the National Weather Service in Atlanta, Georgia, where he worked for the next 22 years before retiring in 2016. Just like with the incident in 1966 and the incident in 1897 and incidents all over the world since the beginning of time, hundreds of credible firsthand accounts were dismissed and discredited to protect the lie that Earth is the only planet in the entire fucking universe with intelligent life. How intelligent that life actually is remains debatable. MUFON is... (laughs) a terrible acronym, but it stands for the Mutual UFO Network, which is a U.S.-based nonprofit organization composed of civilian volunteers who study reported UFO sightings. 
It is one of the oldest and largest organizations of its kind, with more than 4,000 members worldwide and chapters in more than 43 countries and all 50 states. According to MUFON, Michigan is a hotbed for alien activity, very likely because it is surrounded by the largest source of freshwater in the world. According to MUFON, Michigan is in the top 10 for reported UFO sightings every year. While the government has gone to great lengths over the years to hide the existence of UFOs, maintaining its ridiculous stance that we are alone in the universe, a report issued by the National Intelligence Agency in 2021 all but confirmed the existence of UFOs and the possibility of life on other planets. This included reports from the Pentagon, Navy pilots, and former CIA directors. These documents confirmed that there are 144 credible reports of unidentified flying objects that have no explanation. Even former presidents have begun joking publicly about the government's knowledge that there is life on other planets. And apparently, they really, really like us here in the mitten. Thanks so much for joining me today, friends. For a full source list, please visit the page for this episode on the Violent Ends website. Before I go, I do want to tell you about some really cool events coming up at Dead Time Stories here in the near future. So this weekend, April 22nd and 23rd, uh, the 22nd, which is Saturday, we've got what we are calling our Big Scare Book Fair. It is in Rio Town, but is not at Dead Time Stories. It's just down the road at the new Ellison Brewery. Uh, so come, grab a drink, grab some food, and shop the book fair, which it's going to be like a real old school book fair. So like Babysitter's Club and Choose Your Own Adventures and all the books that you loved from your childhood, along with some adult choices too and some other fun stuff, stickers and buttons and things like that. Shop and If you so choose, you're more than welcome to keep everything that you buy, but if you so choose to donate the kids' books that you purchase, we are taking donations for a childhood literacy initiative started by local artist and activist Ryan Holmes. Uh, And if you make a donation, so, you know, you pick your favorite, your favorite babysitter's club and you want to share that with, with a kid today, you donate it to... The initiative will have a donation box at the event. You'll get a 10% off coupon for anything at Dead Time Stories, which will be open right down the road. So it's going to be super fun. I'm super excited. Um, And then April 23rd, we're celebrating my birthday and Hendrix the cat's birthday. We share a birthday. So um, we are doing this with three of our favorite things. So it's called T-Swift, Twilight, and True Crime. So uh, lots of Taylor Swift and Twilight merch and books and just a fun, weird birthday time. (laughs) Uh, And then the following Saturday, April 29th, is Independent Bookstore Day. And there is no better place to celebrate that than down on Bookshop Row, where we're located on Lansing's Washington Avenue. There are five independent bookstores within a mile of each other. We're doing a coordinated effort, uh, book it themed, where you get a bookmark uh, at the first store you stop at. And if you make a purchase at each store, you get a sticker, a star sticker, just like classic Book It. And if you collect all five stickers, then you get a free limited edition tote bag. Uh, And if you post your haul on social media, you get entered to win a free gift basket. 
So really, really busy couple weeks coming up. Uh, and just to, I've saved the worst news for last. Um, it is the end of April. And just like we did last year and the year before that, we are going dark May and August. So there will be no new episodes in the month of May. Uh, we'll call it my spring break. And then I'll see you guys in June with some new episodes. And then we'll take a summer vacation in August. So I'll see you guys hopefully at the bookstore sometime over the next couple of weeks. If not, I'll see you in June. Uh, make sure you're following on all of the socials, the Violent Ends Facebook page, Instagram page, Facebook uh, discussion group. And then on TikTok, I am the Jen Carpenter. And I didn't do that to be pretentious. I did it because just Jen Carpenter was already taken. So yeah, that's all. Uh, until then, keep shining, you magnificent what the fucks. 